0: An exciting development on the KingCast today. We have a brand new sponsor to the show, and that is MessedUpPuzzles.com. If you haven't explored Jigsaw Puzzles as a constructive way to pass all the time you've spent inside over the past year, or haven't found any sick and twisted enough for your taste, Messed Up Puzzles has you covered. Messed Up Puzzles are thousand-piece do-it-yourself masterpieces gouged from horror, grindhouse, and cult classics like Creepshow, Maniac, Zombie, The Beyond, Suspiria and many more they even have the filthy puzzle from pieces which is a really cool thing to have and if blood and guts somehow aren't your thing they have more uplifting puzzles like a whole line dedicated to Elvira mistress of the dark order yours now from messeduppuzzles.com and use the code king for 10% off your first order
1: and before we jump into the show it is also time to talk about our overlords at Fangoria You've heard us discuss this magazine, but you know it rules. We, everybody knows this; this is common fact. Mm-hmm. They have the best articles, the best writers, including uh, your intrepid hosts uh, from time to time, from time uh, to time, yes, from time and you know, little people like you know Paul Thomas Anderson, Jordan Peele. Like I said, just just the best, and us. <laughs> but yeah, no, they they make a high quality magazine once every quarter. They release it, and you can only get those articles in your. Grubby little hands in a physical copy. Since you are listeners to this show, you can get a full 25% off your entire order if you buy an annual subscription at fangoria.com using the promo code KingCast at checkout.
0: All that said, on with the show.
2: Hi, my name is Stephen King.
0: Gonna break! Bad Bad we see a dead body. Well, sometimes that is better.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Kingcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vesby. I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. We have a returning KingCast champion joining us today to talk about Stephen King's The Green Mile and its under-discussed Frank Darabont adaptation. Uh, You'll know our guest from his own top-tier King adaptations, Gerald's Game and Dr. Sleep, as well as Oculus, Hush, and Netflix's Super Spooky The Haunting of Hill House. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the KingCast stage, Mr. Mike Flanagan.
2: Hello! Thank you so much for having me back.
0: Yes, we're excited to talk to you today, as always. So I hear you're about to start shooting on uh midnight don't tell me <laughs> it's not society <laughs> as we just found out it's not midnight club it's midnight fuck help me out here best no,
2: it was midnight club yeah no it's oh was it's, it midnight club yeah yeah oh, it's shit. Um, But, you know, it's it's, that's only one of the many midnight themes uh, shows that I'm on right now. So I can understand why. Right. Why it doesn't leap right to mind. That was my
0: question. I was like, did you mistakenly sign a thing with Netflix where everything you do now has to have the name Midnight in the (laughs) in the title? It's, it's very it's a very weird kind of confluence
2: of, of projects that have been floating around for a long time that I didn't even realize were all
0: midnight projects until they've collided this way but <laughs> you so. you were you must have been working on the other one while this was going on there must have been some overlap on both midnight projects is what yes. I'm trying to say
2: no and there currently very much is we we shot midnight mass uh, last fall we wrapped in December and so I'm in post on that right now I'm, I'm cutting that together at my desk in the production office for the midnight club uh and we're two weeks away from shooting that now so it's just just slammed together how we're, many we're confusing there...
1: emails you must have responded yes. to, to the wrong email at a certain point and oh yeah some, some midnight club person's going what the fuck are you talking about island or whatever the hell well and everybody
2: like does that thing because you, you you always kind of come up with this slightly abbreviated version of your title like you know everybody's always like you know for haunting it was like oh we're we're Bly." Uh, or, but but this one everyone just defaults to midnight, and it's we're like at Bly. Yeah, it's like, like it's, it's like it's George Clooney's villa. Oh, we're at Bly <laughs> right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm calling from Bly. Uh, like it's, it's very. Everybody just goes for like, yeah. Well, we we need to talk about sets for for uh, for midnight. And it's like I'm going to need you to be more specific. It's really become confusing, but it's it's really fun and. I'm lucky to be, you know, to be working
0: like this. Um, How so long do you expect to be shooting for?
2: Uh, we're shooting through mid-July, and oh, right on. I think uh, by then Midnight Mass should be finished. And and hopefully, hopefully, if we if we finish it on time, uh, you guys will be able to see it sometime this year, which would be great. Ooh. That'd be great. Are, yeah,
1: are you shooting the whole thing? or Are you just doing the like the first couple?
2: Uh, I'm directing the first two. Um, I'm going to be on set for the whole thing, though. I'm I'm going to be keeping an eye out on everyone. <laughs> yeah, keep it and I've wanted to make this this show like since I was in uh, great middle school, I guess. Sure. Um. So I, I was such a Pike nut that I'm 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 really like just jazzed to be on set and see some of these some of these books I love so much come to life. And, right. And it's like the alternative is I get to go home to Los Angeles and not be on set and it's like no i'm good i'm gonna stay stay up here for the whole thing
1: (laughs) and hang out with nancy thompson yeah and and hang out with with heather
2: langenkamp and and i've got so many of my my other uh my other regulars are back on this show and, and so it's it's just a really cool cool little uh diversion while we kind of wait for the year to hopefully continue to settle gradually into something resembling sanity so.
1: it feels feels like it's going that way like just uh I, i've been talking to so many people in la so many people around the country uh who have been like desperate to get their vaccine started you know which is actually a really good <laughs> good point of view to have there are a lot of people who aren't and they uh make me very angry uh but you know it just feels like the accessibility is becoming greater now and and that that's only the more that that's accessible the more the world can get back to normal so it's it's very It's very exciting to me. Like I'm the the prospect of going and getting a haircut is so much more exciting to a 40 year old man than it should be, Um, especially one with thinning hair and won't have uh, much hair for very much longer. I'm excited to cut what I do have off. And uh, are you going to go
0: when the day? Let me ask you this. When the day comes, are you going full bald? What are we talking about? You're just going to shave it
1: yeah it's it's gonna be the it won't be full bald but it'll be the the like the clippers i'll I'll have the little fuzz i think i think that's what i'm going for
0: like one length all the way around
1: i haven't explored it but yes i'll i will try that first and if it looks awful then maybe i'll go mr clean yeah don't don't do
0: that don't do that first uh you will look very (laughs) silly with that haircut (laughs) but but I, i i've always told myself the same thing like if it Like, if I noticed that I was going bald, I'd just just be done with it. You know, why not? You had your time in the sun, hair. It's time for a new look, (laughs) a new me. But after the 2016 election, I shaved my head because around that time, well, I was bartending at that time. We had to wear hats at work. And I was wearing like a ski cap every day because it was cold when I came into work. And it was just ungodly hot having, you know, hair under a, a beanie bartending. And uh, so I shaved my head and then I went to Walmart and got like mean mugged by uh, about half the people in the store <laughs> and was like, just felt awful. It was like, oh my God, they think I'm a fucking skinhead. But you wear a lot of hats, so you're going to be fine. Don't worry about
1: that. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to Ron Howard it for sure. That That's going to be my, <laughs> my goal.
0: So, Mike, you've already been on the show before. We've already gone through your king origin story is there anything king related you'd like to talk about before we get to your selection today
2: Ooh, um well I, i'm i'm very excited uh, because i heard the overlook series is moving forward oh really and yeah, yeah. and uh, i think uh jj abrams is behind J. J. it one, and,
1: yeah.
2: yeah and I'm, I'm really kind of psyched to you know i love i love seeing the overlook on screen so right. I, i'm really excited to see we, See what they do with it. And, did and you so ever I, read
1: I, uh, Mazzara's script for for Overlook, his his uh, shiny prequel? Yes, I did. Pretty yeah. fucking good, isn't it? It's very cool. It it, it was. Uh, they
2: showed it to me when I was at Warner when we were gearing up on. Oh, right. Doctor Sleep, and right, right. It was really really great, and and it, and it 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 struck me as like the opportunities to do a proper Overlook prequel, like the the storytelling opportunities there are just so rich that. Mm-hmm. I, I really, I can't wait to see what it is. So I I've been, I've been looking forward to that.
0: That, that script is like, there will be blood plus the shining. It's yeah. so fucking rad, you know? Yep. Um, I had not heard that about the overlook. I heard about some other thing that Abrams was doing like an anthology series or something. There's like, we were, we were frozen under for the last week and a half or however long right. it was. We're still getting back to civilization here, but um in that time, they apparently greenlit or put into development or advanced like 16,000 Stephen King adaptations. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. And
2: and it's uh, I know Lissy's story is like right around the corner. They, they yeah. got that. They got that done. Um, and I had gotten a I, I always I always feel weird and kind of great when I get to do this. But uh, Steve had sent me the, uh, the script <laughs> uh, to, to Lissy's story just. Cause I had wanted to do that as a movie years ago and he had said, Nope, like I'm doing that myself. And, and, uh, but he knew I loved it so much. And so he sent me the scripts so I could just get a look at them as a fan, um, last year. And it was, it's going to be a great show. Like if, if awesome. they, if they do, it's on the page, it's going to be awesome.
0: Oh, totally. And with Pablo Lorraine directing, come on, dude.
2: Yeah. That guy's doing it more. Yeah. It's going to be, yeah. it's going to be awesome.
0: The talent is so stacked on this one. Um, I, I don't see it not being at least very good i mean maybe it won't be great who knows but the deck is stacked in its favor i guess I yes would say. and it's interesting so because yeah
2: the cards are always like the cards looked amazing on on Dreamcatcher. you know it's like oh, yeah,
1: right. you never really know how it'll go <laughs> well <but> I, that's <laughs> I, yeah <laughs> that's very um, true <laughs> the guy I, who wrote empire strikes back. back is doing stephen king yeah and it was like with this cast what could possibly yeah. go william Goldman, how many yeah. oscars Writing
0: is this gonna win
1: <laughs> yep
0: they it's fucking like, oh, nailed man. the, the Duddits casting guys <laughs> they just they just killed it over here um did you you just recently wrapped or you know relatively recently wrapped your uh stand podcast i'm wondering yeah, if you yeah. had a chance to watch the new series and what you thought of that
2: uh, I've only seen the first episode, um and mm-hmm. it's, I've got the rest of it queued up. Um I want to be able to it's over now, right? They made it to the end, yeah, yes, yeah, I was waiting to, for it to be bingeable so i I'm looking forward to diving in. I was on set with Hamish Linklater, um who stars in in my midnight mass show. He was in the first episode, and so mm-hmm. I got to watch it kind of when I was on set with him and and um it was pretty pretty exciting um i'm I'm curious to see kind of how it goes. I was really surprised by. The story structure in the first episode, right, and and kind of where it picked up, and and focusing on Harold, I was I was not entirely expected. prepared for that. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm I'm I was kind of like, wow, all right, this is going to be a very different prism through which to see the story. So I'm curious to see where it goes. Yeah, mm-hmm. at,
1: at the very least, it's get different from all from of what, that. What, what, what's come before. Yeah, yeah. Very mixed on it personally, but you know, they get, it has a great cast, and uh, you can tell the thing that King wrote at the end the coda is him trying to make up for the fact that Harold is almost the default <laughs> uh, star of the show and kind of Franny's kind of put in the the, the background for a good chunk of it because the, the final episode's very Franny centric and and it's not just for the show I'm talking about, but like in his own work. I think he even was saying that he in the in the book, Franny kind of starts off as like a, one of the major main characters and then she kinda gets overtaken by nick andros a little bit and then then it becomes an on, a full ensemble so she is just there to like deliver a baby kind of at the end so and i think right. king said that he was you know always a little disappointed looking back that he didn't do more with her and so this is his chance to to go back to that
2: yeah well, i'm i'm definitely excited to see to see that and and you know we had we had josh boone on the the stand right. podcast, um right kind of as as the show came out and and we got to kind of offline about it afterward. And, and you know, I, I can't imagine approaching a story of that scale. Right. Like, I, I just can't wrap my head around how you start to try to... It's like, it's that old, you know, how do you eat an elephant? Like, how do you start to adapt the stand? Right. And I thought Nick Garris did a hell of a job with the miniseries, you know, given right. the the network limitations, especially that he was under. But I, I think, you know, even Josh will say, like, it's it's so daunting. He was really, really... Uh, he sounded very happy with, with kind of his parts of it, but that, you know, that project was so big and it had so many hands in it, you know, I, I don't know how you, how you get through it, but it's just
0: too big for me to imagine. An enormous undertaking to be sure.
1: This is a good place to plug. If you haven't listened to in the company of the mad, uh, search it out. It is great. You know, Mike, you're on every episode, right? So yeah. Yeah, you and like uh, uh, some really great, talented, very smart people going through the stand two hundred pages at a time.
2: Yeah, um, it, it was a uh, Jason Seacrest, Tanana Reev Dew, and Anthony Bresnican. Um, right. The four of us were kind of the, the regulars, but we had some great guests, and it was so insane to read that book over twenty twenty and into twenty twenty one. Like it, it was just fucking bonkers and creepy. But yeah, it was I hope people enjoy it. It was a really, really wonderful and strange way to experience that novel. And I'm really glad I got to do it.
1: Well, it, it made me a little bit jealous as somebody who also has a Stephen King podcast that, you know, our format isn't as in depth as that and listening to some of those episodes where you're able to just spend 20 minutes talking about a chapter. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. of the book and I was just like oh man so, there's so much meat there and you know these people are so smart and I'm just like well that's not our show so I don't want to copy that anyway <laughs> but but I had those things listening to it going man it's like fuck they're really getting into the, the weeds here like, oh. yeah we
0: recently recorded an episode about the stand with uh, Vincenzo Natali, and it became clear within Oh, I would say about the 30, 35 minute mark into that episode when we hadn't even really gotten to the plot. Yeah. <laughs> that we were going to have to do many, many, many
1: episodes on the stand. In a order do an to, hour for each of the 12 main characters and still not. <laughs> oh, totally. N- yeah, you know, get below the surface level. So, well, let's not it's fracture the
0: timeline any any further than the, the newsstand <laughs> already did. What we're here to talk about today is the Green Mile. Can you tell mm. us uh, a bit about why you chose the Green Mile? Sure. Let's start.
2: So I I vividly remember the experience of reading the serialized release of the Green Mile as it came out, and waiting a month in between. You know, each of those tiny little mm. paperbacks for the next like hundred pages. And I fell really madly in love with that book. And, and it was my senior year of high school. I was still kind of growing as a constant reader. Um, it was a really exciting format experiment. I almost can't imagine, like, in, in today's world, the idea of, like, we're going to try to increase visibility and enthusiasm by releasing a book in, in, in month-long installments. I, I Everything is so bingeable these days. I can't imagine right. that, But um but yeah, I, I loved, loved uh, this book so much. And, and it was one of those movies when they announced that Darabont was doing it um, after Shawshank, which was such a world-changing movie. Right. Um, it just seemed like such a perfect marriage of material and, and filmmaker. And, and I hadn't seen The Green Mile, I think, since shortly after it came out, which right. was now half, half my life ago so uh it's it's weird the
1: the movie is is like that it's weirdly undersung and underappreciated but you're right at the time frank darabont doing the other big stephen king prison movie was just like yeah it's like casting patrick stewart as professor x it's like of course you do that yeah (laughs) you know the, the there is no other option here you have to you have to do it and you know he's coming off of You know, this is right when, even though Shawshank didn't make a ton of money on release, it got all the Oscar noms and, you know, was doing gangbusters on video. And, like, Frank's kind of become the Stephen King guy, which is another reason why I'm actually really excited you talking about this, because you're kind of in that mantle now. It's like Rob Reiner kind of passed it off to Darabont. Now you're in the position of being the guy that knows his shit when it comes to making Stephen King movies. No pressure. Um, yeah, no pressure. Was, and, oh, and, uh, yeah. but it's, uh, it's so fascinating kind of looking back on it. And I, we all had that experience. Like, I, I think that was such a, a national, you know, I don't know about world, but you know, definitely in the States, the green mile, they were advertising those, those books, you know, they were advertising the single issue small paperbacks that you can get. Like I I, I got them at the grocery store like every month that they came out and yep. was really excited when I saw a new color because it was all like the green tint. But they had a different color for like the, the banner on it or whatever for the title and uh, got excited like, oh, this is the third one. I'm, I'm really, you know. I'm really excited. I get to get the next step of this. It was almost like King Mary watching a Lost-style TV. This is pre-Lost, but you know what I mean. But watching the must-see TV uh, thing, but with books.
2: Yeah, it is very much mimicking the effect of of a really great miniseries or a season of television, you know, with with printed printed paperback books. It, and it's interesting that that they never really did it again. Like nobody else tried to kind of use
0: this model and well this is this is a thing dickens used to do right you know you release stories serialized like this but in what were essentially pamphlets isn't that right yeah that
2: is correct the
0: serialized novel in the past was was a huge thing i wonder if the fact that we haven't seen it since has more to do with as you've already noted like our attention spans to you know, follow the release of one book over the the course of like seven months, or if it's well, there's more, there's
1: only a few few authors that can get away with it. Like you know, pre uh, all the transphobia stuff, J.K. Rowling could have done it. Probably yeah. um, she can still
0: do it, frankly.
1: Yeah, well, especially if it was it was Potter world. If if she came out and said, "Hey, I have a, a new Potter story, and we're releasing it as one book," you know, every month that's going to be you know like a little novella each time that 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 would go like gangbusters. King can do it. I don't know who else is there somebody else that's big enough that has a big enough following? It's a relic
2: from a different world, I think like yeah like it really you could you could have it come out and get a, a download every month, you know, added to your your iBooks mm. app or something. but I think to actually go out and I did it the same way you did. I went to the grocery store. I went to Walmart like <laughs> it was it was wherever I thought it would be right by the checkout.
1: And, right. Always, yeah. Like by the and, TV guides when TV guides. Were yeah. Because it was the yeah. same size as like a TV guide, right? Yeah. They
2: were they were tiny, and it was like six bucks. It was like you just you go grab it and then run home. You read it in one sitting, and then you got to wait a month for for the next <laughs> piece. And I remember the last book, um, which had this beautiful cover that was finally uh It was Coffee on the Mile, and it 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 had the his his hands kind of cupping the image of the mouse, right, and. Uh, I had figured out the release dates of everything and I'd kind of plotted it out and was waiting. And I happened to be at the grocery store with my mother getting groceries and they had accidentally put the book out a day early. And oh, I wow. saw it, I saw it from like across the grocery store. I saw the the cover and just went tearing across and, and grabbed it. And I was like, I need to buy this right now before they realized their mistake. And I read it a day <laughs> early and cried. Like it, it was such a beautiful story, <laughs> but, but yeah, it, it's it's always kind of been a, a sentimental favorite of mine, and um, I was surprised actually that nobody had had grabbed it for the King cast yet because I think, and I might be wrong. I, I should probably double check this, but I think prior to the release of it, that the Green Mile was the most successful King adaptation of all time financially.
1: Yeah, like, it was pretty big. It was well over three hundred million worldwide, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, yeah i mean there was somebody early on scott do you remember who what we were talking with somebody and they picked the green mile and i bought like the paperback book that collected all of them but so i bought that like in the early days of the king cast do you remember who that was scott i'm pretty sure that was uh vladimir putin mm, at that one right
0: um yeah no i have no fucking idea i <laughs> i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't tell you what happened yesterday Are you kidding? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I have no idea. In fact, I have no memory of that at all. That's not even like ringing a bell. No. Um,
1: Well, yeah, we we did have somebody early on pick it. Was it Mike? Drop it.
0: Did Mike drop it? It wasn't Mike.
1: Maybe he picked it and and then
0: abandoned it for for something else.
1: I would assume that maybe they looked at the runtime of the movie and they're like, Oh, let's pick something shorter. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I have a funny story about the movie, by the way. So I, this must've come out in what 99 or 2000, yeah.
2: 99, December it's 99. Christmas day. Yeah.
1: Christmas day. Um. So I was working at a movie theater at that time. That, that was my senior year of high school. Um. I must've just gotten out of high school actually. Cause I went to work right after I, I graduated, Uh. you know, I went to work at the movie theater and what they would do occasionally is this is back in the olden days, kids, when they ran movies on actual celluloid film, and uh, the way that that works is that they're all shipped to you uh, in reels. And tip, a typical movie is like five or six reels. Their reels are like fifteen to twenty minutes apiece, and then the projectionist would splice them together and put them on a platter and and run them. So, in order to make sure they didn't fuck that up, they would sometimes run tech tests. Uh, and that would mean they would just run the entire movie like a few days before it came out. And they were like, I got really excited when Green Mile was coming in. Uh, I'm like, yes, I can see the new you know guy did Shawshank, the new Stephen King. And uh, they waited till after the theater closed. And this is the mall theater. And so we didn't close until like one in the morning. And uh, uh, and then it took like half an hour to get everything threaded up. And we're like, oh, this is great. And then. <laughs> We're watching this fucking thing, and we didn't get out of that theater until like four thirty in the morning because it's, <laughs> it's 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 a well over three hours long. oh yeah, so that that is my memory of watching that for the I don't remember how I reacted to it. I'm sure I cried, I knew I know I liked it. I've never had a moment where I'm like oh, I don't like that movie or whatever i was never never in that, but I don't remember any other details other than like walking out of the mall theater at like four thirty in the morning into the empty parking lot. I don't think so I
0: saw it in the theater for whatever reason. Interesting. Um, I don't know why. Um, it might have just been a timing thing because uh, I think probably maybe in a military school might have fucked with that somehow, or hmm. maybe it was because it was the holiday and there was something else. I I don't know. I really don't know. But I, I you really I hated
1: Tom Hanks in that that era?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, Tom Hanks murdered my father. Um, and so I, I carry that with me every day, but, um, I don't recall why I didn't see it in a theater. I think I eventually saw it like on, you know, like double tapes from blockbuster or something, or maybe, maybe on a DVD, but I do remember thinking, and this, this was not the reaction I had to it when I revisited it for this episode recently but i remember thinking at the time like that movie that book is so much a bummer like 80% of it is a bummer you know and i'm not sure i want to uh, like i'm not sure how much of a hurry I, i'm in to sit through 3 hours that's 80% a bummer for you know the feel good stuff that does eventually pop into the story but it's man i didn't i didn't react to it like that this way and it is it is just an amazing piece of work. I think it's just it's just as good as Shawshank. It's just doing a completely different thing, you know?
1: Right. It's just not as simple as Shawshank. You know, Shawshank gets to have a very contained, smaller scale interpersonal yeah. story. Um so Shawshank kind of wins just on a clarity level. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think uh but this one you're right. All the artistry that made Shawshank work is in this movie. You know, this, Frank's understanding of King and uh, understanding how to adapt King well and bring his voice into the, you know, the forefront to get his characters right, which is, you know, a huge deal. You do that, then you're like 90% of the way there.
0: That's oh, why that. it's so long, you know. Yeah. Right? It's, so you're getting all those character moments in there. and It does.
1: So, it kind of does feel like you're reading the book in a weird. It's a very novelistic, yeah. and 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 in a mic, this might be a good place for you to jump in because your director's cut of uh, Doctor Sleep gave me that same feeling, where you know maybe it's just as simple as you throwing in chapters, you know, <laughs> that made it more novelistic. But it, it weirdly felt more true to the experience of reading King, you know, in a similar way that The Green Mile did, you know, and just being able to live in that world. Well, it's it's interesting because it,
2: it, I had to. I was watching it last night, getting ready for this, and I, I paused it right when coffee heals Paul, just to see what what the runtime was at. And it, it's it's an hour in, and <laughs> um, and I had bumped into a similar issue on on Doctor Sleep, where the studio and when, when I'd done my cut was like, you know, the movie doesn't really start until an hour in, right. and I, I thought it was very interesting. Because uh, you know we we came out at a little more than three hours also, and it's like it, it's another book that King wrote. You know, in re- relative close proximity, Doctor Sleep and in, in, um in Green Mile. Well, no, 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 that's not true at all. What am I talking about? That's like yeah, twenty that's about, years about. Apart. Yeah, fifteen um, issue, yeah. not even close. Then, but, but well,
0: he's seventy years old, so com- relatively, yeah. yeah, yeah you can get you can get, a get little, away with more this. More contemporary side of
2: his of yeah. his career, but. But he spends the first, if you look at the story in a three-act structure, he spends the first act just setting up the pieces. And then the inciting incident happens at the beginning of the second act, which is not how movies tend to work. Like movies, they want the inciting incident to happen in the first 10 minutes. Um, something that kind of lights the fuse, sets the question, and tells you what it's about. And this is a story that reveals what it's about a third of the way through. And that's pretty incredible. And I, I think you, I was wondering how Darabont got away with spending a solid hour on character development and arrangement. And I couldn't wrap my head around it because it, it just seems impossible in today's marketplace. And I think the only answer is you Tom made Hanks. The Shawshank Redemption five right. <laughs> five years
0: yeah,
1: Tom Hanks. Right. Yeah, the yeah you have an A list star. Yeah. 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 It, and that's by that,
0: amazing. yeah, because by that point, like Shawshank was. <laughs> turning a a profit for the studio and to was a degree re- that it was prestigious not- it got all the awards
1: yeah well and yeah think- i'm
0: just thinking on a studio level though you know i i think the critical reactions and such are those are important to them but at the end of the day it's like
1: it's not the critics Crit- it was the awards it, it was it was bec- and the awards was like really spurning th- that process of, of it making money um, but you're you're right. It, it, it's still weird that the studio said, cool, you can do a three hour plus long period drama with some fantasy elements and we'll we'll have it all hang on on somebody whose biggest role that he had done is, uh uh you know, playing one of the 18 astronaut oil drillers in Armageddon. You know, <laughs> it's like it, it, it is. Weird. I mean, listen, you have tom hanks in there that obviously gives him a little bit of leeway with the studio but i just have to imagine and if we we do get frank on the show at some point i'm sure we'll ask him but you know i have to imagine that that it really was the prestige element of shawshank and that didn't happen on release but it still happened within a year or two it wasn't like the thing that it took 20 years for people to turn around on it 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 just took people seeing it before it became like the favorite movie of every dad in america
0: Mike, how did you feel after the first time you saw Shawshank and the first time you saw Green Mile?
2: Uh, the first time I saw Shawshank, I was floored. I mean mm. it's it's a that's a, an example of a film that it's it's demonstrably better than its source material. The short story is great, but the movie is astonishing.
1: Right, and right, you
2: come out of it like it's got a
1: better ending. That's for sure.
2: Oh my God! The, the and the and you're 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 washed over with hope and peace and triumph and like the the emotions of watching the Shashnik Redemption are like you're you're beat up for so long and then it is so satisfying at the end. Like you get this beautiful cathartic wish fulfillment, and it's just inspiring. And then the Green Mile is profoundly sad. It is um, <laughs> right. Right there is, you know, I I would even say I thought you were being a little generous by saying it was eighty percent a bummer. Like it's in the high nineties for me. It, there's there's almost no. I was being generous. Yeah. yeah, it's it's well, it's it's so fucking sad, and and the book is even sadder somehow. The book has that that extra beat of the death of his wife. The the movie mm-hmm. for for all the freedom, like Darabont had to actively decide not to include that. And I think it's because it was just so bleak.
0: Yeah. Um, One step too many down that
2: road. It's just so profoundly cynically like this this movie and the, the story in general just seems to be this despairing kind of cry of like, why, why is the world this way? Why, why do these bad things happen? Why are we drawn to destroying not only each other, but also like if, if there's a God and he sends a miracle, we kill the miracle. And the miracle is so sad to be here. Like, it's such a sad, tragic story. And and so when I ended the Green Mile, like, it doesn't have that big swelling, you know, you leave just, like, wanting to give somebody a hug and smiling feeling that Shawshank had. Like, you sit in the Green Mile and, and even the music at the end is just like, yep, it's real, real sad. <laughs> and like, you just, kinda, <laughs> you just sit there and it's like, oh, you're exhausted emotionally. And, and so it's, and, and what's amazing is all the ingredients of Shawshank are here. Like you've got, mm-hmm. you've got the big prison set. You've got the classic kind of gauzy, um, almost sepia toned, you know, historical period feeling the guards, there's more humor in the green mile, but it, it isn't funnier. Like it's, right. it's. It's just very fucking sad, but I, it's beautiful. And the message and the question of it is profound and aching, but it, it's a real kick to the heart to make it from the beginning to the end of this movie.
0: Right. Um, Yeah. The, The production design is notable, I think. And it's notable to me. I mean, it's, it's great in general, but to me personally, because when I read the books, this is essentially exactly what I pictured. Yes. You know, uh, man, I can't tell you how many adaptations I've seen where it's like, well, yeah, it's yeah, that's in the book and that's in the bu- this is what it's supposed to look like. But it's not what I thought it was going to look like, you know, and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. But on this one, it was like, that's what the fuck? Like, is someone like spying on my brain?
1: <laughs> um, the it's production was just so sharp. it really it, it is. It really is. I'm- Lord of the Rings is like the the key example of like, how did they get this exactly? right yeah like everything it either looks the way i wanted it to reading those books or it's better than what i had imagined yeah it's incredible when a film can can do that there's something
2: about this too where it, that's not only true of the production design it's true of the cast the right. cast yep. 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 Well yep. Put together it's ridiculous and we we all picture i'm sure different people when we read this book but how immediately you know, Sam Rockwell just is Will Wharton. Like like how instantaneously, you know, uh, I mean, Michael Hank's Jeter. being Hanks. But yeah, Mike, Michael, oh, Michael Jeter. Jeter. Michael
0: Jeter, it's like it born oh. right out of the book. It was like yeah. Michael Jeter was born specifically to one day play this role in this thing because he's so dead on fucking Edward Delacroix. Uh, like David Morse is
2: brutal, incredible. Um, Michael Clark Duncan, of course, is just like teleported out of the book onto the screen.
1: Harry Dean like, Stanton, Harry yeah. Dean Stanton. Oh this my god! Is yes. Walking the mile, walking the mile, didn't walking. <laughs> yeah. I'm praying, praying to God.
2: It, it's yeah. the the cast is absurd. Like it's one of the best ensembles you're going to see in a King adaptation, well, perhaps ever like it's, right it's, and
1: doug it's, hutchison too it's like listen there's there's a whole bunch of problematic shit to talk about with him if we want to oh, but fuck that guy but but, but, but it's almost movie. weirdly enough that baggage almost helps the movie now because he percy is one of the most despicable characters that king has ever written i like, mean hands down full stop yeah. i guess i
0: guess it um oh boy this is tangled knot here um right. <laughs> I think I think that I agree with what you're saying, but also I feel as though like textually we are given every fucking reason to hate Percy Wetmore. I did not necessarily need a further push in that direction. Uh, right. and, I, and I certainly didn't need that push to be this guy married a 16 year old. You know what I'm saying? So I'm kind of like, like, I know what you're saying in in that sentiment, but also I'm kind of like, ah. We could have done without that. I think.
1: I'm ha- I'm that- happy that that he doesn't seem to have much of a career now. I'm just saying. I watch this movie and like I can't picture anybody else's Percy after seeing him in this role. No, he's not
0: perfect for that role. I'll, I'll grant no, you that. Like you want to beat him to death every you fucking do. minute he's on the screen.
1: <laughs> yeah, you
0: know who I'd forgotten was in this was Gary Sinise
1: when I yeah. watched it.
0: And like these days, you you rarely see Sinise. I think he might be on a t- sh- TV show or something, but it's yeah. not one that I want. He's
1: doing some network primetime shit. Yeah.
0: Good for One of those CSI
1: procedurals. Thing. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's
0: totally fine. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, yeah. I just rarely see him on the big screen anymore. And so when it's like when you do see him pop up in a fucking you know prestige movie like this, you're like, fuck yes yeah,
1: Sinise! like what why <laughs> are giving you giving that great scene too where he's Ugh. talking about uh the family dog that bit his kid and yeah and you know this is only a few years after forrest gump so you have you yeah. know lieutenant dan and you know, and forrest back sitting together sharing a scene and this is again only a f- few years off of the stand as well so he's got the the king connection yeah well, they've apollo 13 together that's right well. so it's it's like this. I always little- forget because they're in, they're not like yeah. in the same capsule.
0: I miss Sinise, though as a as a big screen presence, and I don't know if it was like a conscious choice on his part to to stop. You know, maybe just stick with this show full time, and that's just the end of that, or or what. But goddamn, I could if I saw like a casting announcement for a movie that I was really excited about, and Sinise was in there, I would lose my mind absolutely. Like <laughs> he's so fucking good, that guy. He came, he came out of the same like acting community that Malkovich did, right? Out of Chicago? Sounds right. <laughs>
1: I, I don't know.
0: Everyone has done their Sinise homework before this episode, correct? <laughs> <laughs> he did. I'm 99% sure, but uh, and he,
2: the Steppenwolf I mean, the Theater. was kind of what, what exploded him into the, into the limelight, right? Like, did he have, outside of theater, did he have, because I, I know, I, I believe that's why he and Malkovich did Mice and Men together. Right. Yeah, like they they performed the that
0: together. at yeah Steppenwolf theaters where those guys were were out of basically, and I think they performed that like as a show, and then eventually it got turned into a movie. And it's like, well, we got to get these guys for it. But yeah, the ca- the cast on this thing is is insane, and we also didn't mention William Sadler is in it. Barry yeah, Pepper right? is in it. Mm-hmm. Um, Graham Jeffrey Green DeMond. Jeff yeah.
2: Demunn who, who is such a King staple for me. And now a like sure. a Darabont staple too. Right? Oh yeah. You know, it, it's really, it's Patricia Clarkson for like 10
1: minutes. <laughs> right. You know,
2: um, Bonnie just Hunt. to
1: call people cocksuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Graham <laughs> green,
2: you know, who has a beautiful
1: right? monologue right in that first,
2: first little, uh, first, the first execution, like it's a Barry pepper. It's, it's a g- phenomenal, phenomenal ensemble. and, it's kind of a you look at it now it's also a, a cast that so many of them are no longer with us right. and it feels premature for that to be the case you know right. you, you watch it, it's it's very sad for a movie that's so much about death to right. look at so many ghosts on on screen it's really it's a, Well I mean that kind powerful. of brings
1: us to Michael Clark Duncan yeah yes he got nominated for this performance well earned you talk about somebody born to play a character one of those things you see that guy in the frame with with tom hanks you know and tom hanks is coming up to his pecs right yeah <laughs> it's looming like yeah, over i know they did some, some cheating on that you know they they had him on on apple boxes i think he's only like six five only six five mm-hmm. he had to be over seven feet so but it's just like he looks exactly like the character in your mind and he also Embodies the soul of John Coffee in the pain of John Coffee, and the the happiness and joy, the childlike innocence of this character who just wants to help people, and you know the the price that he he personally pays every time he does, and and how it, it is one of one of my favorite on screen King performances, King adaptation performances.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally agree, and it's it's his film, I think, and and yeah. I. I'm thrilled at, at the way the the cast conversation, you know, kind of falls off the truck structured this way, because all of these elements are there servicing that performance. And even Hanks, who at the time is sitting there with two Oscars, you know, in his belt, spends so much of the film sitting back, throwing supporting energy at this incredible performance that Michael Clark Duncan is giving. It's, it's really I, a beautiful thing to
1: watch. I saw, I saw an interview with, darabont where he was saying that there's the scene whenever it's it's the final conversation between edgecombe and uh, john Coffey in the cell where he's having he's doing the the whole you know it's a mercy you doing this for me thing and then the pain in the world the people that's glass in my head you know and he's he's doing that tearful thing and uh darabont was saying that he looked over during that scene and he realized that Tom Hanks was sitting, you know, off camera doing his lines for him. And he, but he looked at him like the camera is not on Hanks, but Hanks is giving a better performance than when the camera was on him because yeah. he knew that he just wanted to be there and give that to Michael Clark Duncan to play off of. And, and he was like, I'm watching an Oscar winning performance. He would win an Oscar if I had the camera on him right now for the work he is doing for Michael. That nobody's ever going to see and that feeling of that camaraderie and we're in it for the bigger picture like that's all through this movie that's all through the 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 whole thing you can feel that you can feel that on the screen. Yep. Uh, Eric,
0: I believe you dug up an interesting story about how Michael Clark Duncan was cast in this movie. The other day, I saw you tweeting about it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's just, I was going through my my Blu-ray of it, and I'm I'm like, you know what, I watched the movie, I'm going to watch some of these behind-the-scenes things, and this is really great. That's where I got that story that makes me sound super smart about uh, Tom Hanks being awesome <laughs> off-camera, that's just in the supplements of the Blu-ray. And in there, Darabont tells the story about how he was adapting, uh, Green Mile he was writing it, and got a call from Bruce Willis who would, he was writing it as the books were still coming out. Essentially. Willis called him and, and uh, essentially said, Hey, I just worked with this guy on uh, Armageddon. just does name Michael Clark Duncan. He is John Coffey. I just finished reading these books. Uh, I hear you're doing this movie. You need to consider this guy. And uh, Darabont, you know, said that that's without that call, he might not have ever seen Michael Clark Duncan for the role, but he, uh, he also talks about how, you know, he worked with, with uh, him a lot through the audition process and it came down between him and two other guys and it was really just seeing his growth and his dedication you know and you hear michael clark duncan talking about taking on this character like he lived and breathed john coffee for for months and months and months before he even got the role like hours a day he was reading the pages and the the sides or whatever the audition pages and he was working with a a an acting coach and, you know, and doing all this stuff. He was dedicated, like he was going out to, you know, to be an Olympian or something, you know, mm-hmm. an Olympic athlete. He was approaching with that level of seriousness. And I think that that just won Frank over and he just saw how his performance was evolving and uh, his ability to deliver this emotion was crystal clear. And uh, that seems to be what gave him the edge. And I'm really glad he did. He, he deserved every, every bit of goodwill that he got off of uh, this performance. Absolutely.
0: Agreed. Imagine if like, you know, you're Michael Clark Duncan and (laughs) this, and this part comes along. I think if I were Michael Clark Duncan, um, most of the things I ever saw him in, you know, he was, he's a great actor, you know, he, and in a phenomenal screen presence. But I also think that he was probably typecast a lot in terms of, well, we need a big dude for this role. Right. You know, with a deep voice, and he's he's physically imposing. Um, I think
1: his first few roles were bodyguards; so they are like bouncers right. and shit. You know, that's that's, yeah. that's that's what he was doing, right?
0: Yeah. And so this part comes along, and it would seem to be like ima- imagine if that's you. It, it's like tailor made to your specific body type and your <laughs> demeanor. This is your chance as an actor to sort of take your career to the next level. It does not surprise me that he would invest that much work and blood sweat and tears into it because he must have known like you know this is this is my shot to prove to everyone that i'm more than like gimmicky casting that i'm not just like a big dude in a in a a, you know a double-breasted suit jacket what a shame though that uh that he's he's not still around that's another example kind of a the the
2: opposite of the doug hutchinson effect is when Mm. you watch those last couple of scenes like when when they go to the the movie and things like that Mm -hmm. Um, and you watch michael clark duncan knowing what will happen to him in life and kind of it it enhances the movie in an interesting way yeah it 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 adds a a layer of emotion to it that's really really profound and i think in in that way the doug hutchinson thing is like the
0: the gross side (laughs) of that coin, right (laughs) the gross side of the coin
1: I'd love to talk about that scene real quick. Uh, the way that Darabont uses top hat uh, in this movie. And that's something that's one of the few things he invented. There isn't a picture show moment in the, in the book. His final wishes are really just to, you know, to eat, you know, some of uh, some meatloaf and, and some of uh, Paul's wife's uh, cornbread. Darabont added this and I love it. I, I mean, he can keep in mind that you think he followed this up with the majestic, which is also, kind of a love letter to old cinema. I do think that this fits very well into the movie. It's one of my favorite scenes. It's got a little of that Sullivan's travels, Preston Sturgis, like this is why movies are magic, you know, feeling to it. And the way that he uses it for joy and also for ultimate sorrow, because that's the thing that opens the movie whenever he sees Fred Astaire, you know, dancing in the old folk home, they're watching it on TV and he just breaks down I love that that Darabont uses that as the instigator for the story. This is what spurs old Paul Edgecombe into telling the story. Is is just happening to watch that old movie with a bunch of uh, retirees in a nursing home.
0: Right.
2: It's it's filmed so spectacularly too. The the close up of Michael Clark Duncan with the projector beam behind him, and they have him perfectly center framed. It's an image that, I mean, burned itself into my brain the first time I saw it. Right. Uh, we, we directly stole it for Dr. Sleep. Like, we do the exact <laughs> same shot. Um, and, and specifically because it was like, we're going we're gonna to do our, our nod to Green Mile here. Um, like, that's the only way I can think of to shoot someone watching a movie. So it, it's it's such a beautiful sequence and the way he he kind of describes them as angels and how that idea is so sadly turned on its head when Paul sees it later in life and and how it also applies to this what we're talking about of watching watching these performers who aren't with us anymore in this movie and you know it's a very beautiful and layered love letter to how cinema kind of captures the ghosts of 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 actors and, and turns them into angels and it, it's a really there's a lot happening there and, and darabont's clearly so in love with cinema that it, it's it's it is in a, in a three-hour movie when you have rich material to invent a sequence to add to it you have to really love it you have <laughs> to sure. really want to and i couldn't agree with you more that it. it's it's an incredible addition
1: He takes it into the execution of coffee too, because that's what he's saying. He's repeating over and over. I'm in heaven. I'm in heaven. I'm in heaven. it's just so smart to, to use this very kind of romantic sappy uh, song and uh, dancing cheek to cheek um, and taking that one verse and having that be, you know, this thing that, that this character that you've grown to love is holding on to uh, and repeating through, terrified tears as the you know as he's about to be put to death in a room full of people who hate him and and I think what he describes is like a bunch of bees stinging their hatred for him is pouring out they would talk about this being a bummer this is like for for John like ultimately it's kind of happy because it's setting him free but it's still you know that ain't in, in no way a happy ending so no. right so um But yeah, that's just uh, I wanted to touch on that because that was something I noticed on this recent rewatch of, uh, you know, how he's repeating under his breath. He's repeating the song that that uh, Fred Astaire is dancing to Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. One thing I'd like to
0: ask Mike, his his take on is uh, the execution scene of Mm. Uh, Delacroix. It's one of the more upsetting deaths, like on screen deaths that I can think of. It is graphic, not necessarily in a bloody way. You know, like the, the hurt that comes from watching that scene, I think is largely emotional because, you know, you've grown to like this guy over the course of, you know, however many minutes before that happens. And so I'm curious how you feel about how they shot that. And I don't know, how do you, how do you shoot a truly upsetting death where it's not about like, like you're not trying to show off your gore effects. You know what I'm saying? They they did it
2: masterfully. I think you know in the book the uh, you know the bad death of Edward Delacroix. It's it's horrific enough to read it. The I think what makes it so incredible is that they they're hiding the gore. I mean, when they put the, the hood down, mm-hmm. the majority of of the horror of that death is happening outside of your scope of vision. It's all under the hood. It's under the clothes. So when you see the smoke and then the sparks and eventually the flames, kind of come come through that yeah that's when the horror kicks in but before that you hear it and they give you these other sensory things like they they the sounds he's making um they have i mean he he zeroes in on someone commenting on the smell which is an incredibly visceral way to kind of yes Put you in the scene and it just kind of keeps going. It's the scene itself is very matter of fact. It's, and, and every time you get to the point where you're like, stop it, stop it. He's very smart that he, he has a character say, stop it. And he has Tom Hanks say no. And so you can't argue with that. Like there's, there's no point where you feel like the, the cruelty on display is entirely Percy's. Mm-hmm but not the movies like like at no point do you feel like the movie is forcing you to live in this moment any longer than you need to because Tom Hanks keeps popping up and saying we have to keep doing this it's more cruel to stop and so like all of that folds in on itself really really effectively so that you feel relieved when it's over but you know the the images that haunt me the most are like you can see the amount of kind of tissue loss in the profile mm-hmm. of his jaw, even after he hangs his head with all the, right. the flames coming through. And you, you imagine how much of him must have burned away, but it's not explicit. It, it's actually very restrained. Right. Um, and I think that's what makes it work. King being the the horror writer that he is, it's it's one of the few sequences of overt horror in the entire story. And it's, I think, all the more powerful because of it. It's it's the kind of approach that you know when when we were talking about how to do the baseball boy in Doctor Sleep, this is a good example of how you can make something that's feels incredibly viscerally uh, brutal without actually showing you that much, right? And and I think Darabont's you know a, a master at that, and the, this sequence is. Just profoundly brutal um, because of it. And it's because, like you said, you, you've fallen in love with the actor and with the character and and when you're forced to imagine what he endures there and how quietly they set it up, like with the sponge, mm. how how kind of they don't make a big deal
0: of it. I mean, Darabont's no, seems, in this movie... It seems like an insignificant detail. It seems like it's just there to sell the reality of the moment until it's used Yeah, Delacroix.
2: Yeah, and you, even then, you're not really prepared for when he says, oh, well, the, the wet sponge makes it go right to the brain. You don't want to throw the switch without it. They don't tell you why. It's just so so brutally visceral. Uh, one thing that struck me, because I, I, I do this same thing, I, I think because of like growing up watching how Darabont adapts King, he's incredible at these slow camera moves, these little dolly pushes on moments of a character thinking about something, realizing something. It's almost never on a line. You see a, a tiny little push on Percy when he is perched over the uh, the bucket, when it, he decides not to soak the sponge. And then they have another tiny little dolly push on Hanks when he kind of realizes something's
1: wrong. Yeah. Um, he doesn't and, see the water dripping down the the face, and he's putting it together.
2: Yeah. Yeah. These These little moments where he'll just simply move the camera slowly in on someone just to kind of lean you forward and say, they're having a moment. They're not going to articulate it, but it's important. There's probably 200 of those moments in this movie. Mm-hmm. The camera is always just glancing toward people on these tiny little dolly pushes. And like that to me, you know, is another thing as I watch it. I'm like, oh, I've been stealing that my whole career too. Like it's, it's, <laughs> it's, um, it, but it's so effective. And and that's how he takes material that is so built on these moments of revelation and thought that on the page King gives you what, what they're thinking and Darabont can adapt him because he, he tells you they're thinking something and right. you are able to kind of very intuitively, whether you've read the book or not, figure out exactly why that dolly pushes there and what that character must be realizing. And it, it, it's how he takes an internal monologue on a King page and makes it an external cinematic experience. And I think that's, that's why
0: it works. Just while we're talking about the, the cinematography in this movie, did y'all know this guy, This same guy also shot all three of the star Wars prequels?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I did not know that.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's true. He also yeah. shot the majestic, another Darabont film, which, uh, I think I only saw that once. I'd be curious to revisit that one.
1: I'd like to ask Mike a little bit more about the filmmaking side of things, because I noticed and maybe I'm going completely crazy, but, you know, I'm pretty sure that they shot uh, Shawshank wide. Right. I think that's that was 235. And this one was 185. This one was kind of more uh, fits our, our regular flat screen TV now, you know, fits the borders. There's no bars. But that's also kind of more of a standard TV thing now. Um, and I also noticed rewatching this, he he shot a lot of close ups. So much of this movie is in close up, and I assume that that was all there to just kind of give you that that you're you're closer to the actors' faces because this is a more confined space throughout this entire thing. So it just feels more like uh, you're there on the mile with with these people. Do you think that that that's uh, what he was doing? Would you have done something similar?
2: Yeah, I, my assumption was exactly that, was that the aspect ratio was chosen to give you that claustrophobic feeling of being on the mile. And it's incredibly, uh, I think, telling, too, that you're absolutely right. He employs television close-ups and extreme close-ups throughout the picture, which on a big screen is actually, it can be aggressive. Like, right. like the, it feels like this was shot for TV, and which is really... <laughs> Really strange and interesting, um, <laughs> but I would have I would have probably done the same aspect ratio for sure. I, I think that's how you get this this beautiful sense of of the mile itself with just enough uh, in frame to kind of feel the um, the individual cells on either side, but you still feel intimate and kind of boxed in. Whereas Shawshank is absolutely you know way more kind of sprawling and wide and cinematic. Um, I'd have to look back at Shawshank to see if he's employing close-ups with the same aggression that he is here, but this one for sure, especially coffee. There are times when, like, he's not holding his the top of his head and his chin in the same frame. It's like he's too big for the frame, <laughs> right? And um, like, that's a really interesting approach. It's aggressively intimate, and I, I admire it. I, I think it's really, it's really neat. What struck me about it as well, aside from he has some really beautiful and kind of abrupt pops into, um, into angles that are looking straight down on the action, kind of direct overheads, even with moves sometimes tracking them while they walk in stairwells, you know, like he, he, for the most part though, is very restrained in, in his shot compositions. It's very much just kind of locking you in with the actor and frequently not falling back to show you a master shot or an establishing shot when coffee first is walked in he stays in such tight shots that you don't even really get a sense of what john coffee looks like until he's been on screen for a minute and a half and some of the character introductions you know when you when you first see graham green he's uh, he's only in close up. They never show you his cell. They never back up to kind of show you where his cell is in relation to the others. It's really intimate. I'm very fascinated by that. I think I would have felt that I I had to be wider in a lot of these scenes to walk you in. And Darabont is very confident in saying, "Nope, I'm just gonna <laughs> I'm just gonna put you right up there with the actor and assume you're gonna put the rest of it together yourself." And it does make those moments when he falls back and shows you the space you're in feel all the more powerful. But if you were, if you were on the mile, like if you were a prisoner there, you would never get a look at the whole thing. You would have a very limited, you know, very boxed in perspective. And the movie does that to the viewer, which I think is really, really interesting.
0: Have you ever spent any time in jail? Mike? I have not. Um, like not even an overnight. Little, Not even an overnight
2: little, little yeah. cheeky,
0: cheeky visit to the
2: <laughs> I I, the so, I sobered up, I guess, before before my uh, <laughs> my overnight period. But but, you know, I've, I've never I've never been in jail. I've scouted them for locations. For, <laughs> for, uh, and we, we have built a few of them um, for projects. But no, I've never I've
1: never done that. I, I visited Alcatraz when I was a teenager. Does that count? <laughs> so did the rock. <laughs> the, the the rock went to the rock is that what you're saying no
0: just the rock the movie i don't know if the rock no. has <laughs> been in, in prison the, the, the rock
1: the movie visited how the rock was sent to that prison is true.
0: For, for his his fanny pack usage in the in the <laughs> early 90s but i have a weird thing with i i've been in jail a couple of times like um never an extended amount of time but i've spent some time in jail you know like Not into gen pop, but right up to it. And then I get bailed out Uh, through most of my 20s. I had a raging drug problem, which, as you might expect, uh, would lead to uh, a scenario where one might be spending some time uh, in a holding cell. And I have uh, an extreme disinterest in virtually any piece of entertainment that uses jail or prison as sort of like a, a background for entertainment it there's nothing entertaining about it it fucking sucks and it's horrifying and um when i watch the green mile i feel like and i'm i'm way i'm probably way overstating here because i've never been on death row but i feel like there's something about the tone of green mile that nails the despair of just being locked up you know what i mean like, in a way that, like, my my wife watches Orange is the New Black. I've seen about 20 minutes of the show cumulatively, and I'm sure it's, like, very great for everybody, but I'm just, like, repelled by it. I don't want to see this environment used like this. I guess all I'm trying to say is that I feel like the Green Mile respects the being in jail experience and also delivers on the respect that, that should be given to anyone who's been sentenced to death and sitting on death row.
2: Yeah. I think, and, and, you know, that you use the word despair. I, I I think I, that's a word I feel really acutely from this story and also a, um, an innate dignity as well. Mm -hmm. And and it seems like Mm -hmm. the movies frequently very, very fast to, you know, emphatically remind the viewer of the inherent dignity of the characters who are behind the bars and how, the kind of most grotesque character is, is actually outside of the bars and, and patrolling. And right. it's Shawshank does that too. There, there's a a beautiful acknowledgement of, of kind of the inhumanity of, of incarceration right. and the nightmare that it can become and, and a very measured and very, you know, beautiful tribute to the, the dignity of, of, of those characters. So I, I, I can only imagine how it feels having, you know, been in there and then, than watching it presented for entertainment. Like you said, I'm, I'm grateful and glad that this, this doesn't feel exploitative that way.
0: Yeah. And again, I just want to be clear. Like I'm, I don't want to overstate things, you know? Sure. I never spent like six months in, in jail or, you know, I think some days at a time, you know, this is like a fraction, this is like a sliver of the actual experience, but That's one of my personal like bugbears. I I just don't think people really understand the reality of what that feels like or how cruel that environment is, you know, when everything is fucking taken away. It's just it's truly wild. It's wild that we do it at all. And it's I I also think it's pretty wild that we just fucking execute people when, you know, uh, court cases fuck up pretty regularly mm-hmm. you know we but- had
1: damien Eccles on the show man he was, he right, was uh, right 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 you know, he was essentially just some paperwork away from never making it out of out of prison it's 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 fucked up uh th- that leads me to an, a question that i've been kind of grappling with um and maybe you guys can help me on it do you think overall this story is pro death penalty or anti-death penalty the obvious answer is anti but the last act John Coffey does is he fucking kills.
2: Kills. Yeah. Wharton.
1: You know, and I've been kind of trying That's to. say good question. That is like, is that out of character for Coffee to do that? No, even knowing what he had done? And because it's, it's at that point, it's a punishment. He's not stopping him from ever killing somebody again because the guy's already on death row. So is that like a wrathful move by him? Did he know exactly what was going to happen? It seems like he knew. What was going to happen when he blew all those, uh, you know, cancer bugs in, the, in the Percy's mouth. It, it seemed a very specific thing, but I guess you could also read it as Percy. The one person on that block that Percy was actually scared of was that character. So it, I guess it's possible you could read it as coffee, not exactly knowing that he was going to do it. But I, then why hold hold it in and, and give it to Percy? And, and no no matter what i, I you know, what he did you, even if it's a revenge against percy for what he did to delacroix which he uh john coffee felt deep in he felt that he felt every bit of pain that that uh, uh delacroix felt on his execution so you know what is it that's what i'm wrestling with 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 that is like do you, do you think that that's within coffee's character to you know have that kind of vengeful moment
2: that's a great question wow i because I would have said the same. I would have said clearly, this is an anti-death penalty story. Right. But that's a really compelling argument, and I, I wonder if I wonder if that is perhaps one of the reasons why Coffee kind of wants to get out of this. That like he's he's pulled into the same eye for an eye retaliatory justice, you know, that seems to have kind of overtaken everybody and that he doesn't feel vindicated or okay after that he feels an enormous amount of despair i've always viewed the moment that cements kind of the movie's position well the story's position since it isn't in the movie but it is that moment when paul's wife jan dies in i think it's a bus accident in the book Right. And he uh, he looks up and he, and she's bleeding out in his arms and he looks up and he sees John Coffey watching, and it occurs to him that he killed the person who could have saved his wife, yeah, and and that you know that so I think that that for me was kind of the final thesis statement of the book was was that this kind of cycle of death and retaliation just basically Mm -hmm. means that even the people who are there to bring light and life and hope into the world are are killed. And I think that's where you get the coffee as Jesus kind of, you know, metaphor that I I think King is definitely at least, you know, tilting toward, if not downright
0: pointing at, but.
1: Right.
0: I agree. Everything Mike just said, I was going to say, but
1: (laughs) he said it. And you were I gonna think, say it more eloquently too. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't, was I was probably was yeah,
0: I probably would have it probably would have been sharpened up a little bit on my end. But <laughs> you know, we'll we'll allow it. Like, you know, uh thank you for saving me the trouble, Mike. That was that was fantastic. <laughs> it,
1: it's, it's, I, uh, I I don't it's, honestly yeah.
0: have an answer. Like it's it's a great question, and maybe that's the
1: conundrum. It's unquestionably a cathartic moment for the reader or for the audience, right? right this is for sure. This you want to see uh, that know.
0: motherfucker die. You know, you really well, and, do.
1: And Percy going crazy and ending up where he met uh, Wharton in the first place. You know, insane. And just he's on the other side of it. You know, he's going to be the, the guy in the padded room for the rest of his life. And, you know, the, we just as an audience, we love seeing comeuppance. You know, just as, you know, mm-hmm. we love seeing when you're like driving down a country road and some dickhead like is going 80 behind you and passes you up and almost runs you off the road. And then you go, you know, five miles down and you see him pulled over by a cop. You, you get that same, like, yeah, you know, fuck you. Sometimes the bad guys don't win, you know, and the assholes don't win, you know? So it's definitely cathartic for the audience. And I think it is impeccably well done. Like you know, the fact that it's established that coffee can pull the pain out of people and then release it. And the fact that he holds it in specifically, you know, for these characters, it's like, you know, I, I think it's very well set up and, and uh, very well executed, but it, it's just something that, you know, just kind of sticks with me where I'm, I'm not sure if it muddies the ultimate message of the movie or if it, you know, muddies, you know, coffee in a way that it's, you know, that it's untrue to the character. I don't think it does, but, you know, but it does make me question it sometimes when I'm just trying to mull it over in my brain on making it fit in the, the overall story. Hmm. It is interesting that it it forces the viewer
2: to basically be the witness to an execution, right? Uh, and also want it. Like it, it it forces you to sit in the position where, like, you see William Sadler yeah. sitting, where you're like, yes, yes, kill him, like
1: like burn burn him twice, so, one for each of my girls. Yeah,
2: yeah. It 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 really does. It, it's a fascinating thing that it, it forces you to watch uh wharton gets shot and be like "Yup, he deserved it and it's like wow it it just kind of cruelly dumps you into the position that the movie is saying like this is the problem is this this attitude and then it makes you do it and then coffee's like i'm out of (laughs) here like you guys (laughs) are fucked up but yeah it's you're right it's a really interesting reversal on what seems to be the thesis of the movie i've I've never considered that before well you're welcome you're welcome
1: america um, the one other thing that I'd like to bring up before we wrap is some, one other thing that's not included in the movie that it, I feel is one of the most haunting parts of the book. And that is coffee sensing the souls <laughs> essentially of the people who have died in the electric chair and, and how he gives it a wide berth and, and King it's only like a page or two in the, uh, in the book, but it is very it's 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 almost like he's gotta he can't help himself he's gotta throw a little overlook into this where you know there's been a little impression of everybody who is who has died in old sparky that coffee can sense and he he talks about it and the way he talks about it is very haunting of you know how he hears the people that have died in that chair and shit i don't know if i have a question to lead into that but that is a moment in the book that that uh, on this revisit leading up to this episode stood out to me because it was something that I'd for- completely forgotten until I was going through it again. And, uh, and I f- feel like it is like one of the most like <laughs> Stephen Kingy things in, in the story that uh, Darebont chose not to, to wrap into the movie.
2: That's a very odd omission actually. Cause it, I think it only, it only helps that spooky Kingness and it's a really haunting idea. Um it might be Especially that Especially
1: since he ends up in, in the chair too. You know, it's yet another thing. He's sitting there with the everybody who's in the witness stand, you know, hating on him anyway, and he's trapped into this thing that, you know, has all this pain and torment and death, you know, <laughs> psychically needling into him at the same time. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: It's worth mentioning the, the only other thing I would want to bring up about this story. Yeah. you know and, and we talked about this a little bit on the stand thing and in, re- in relation to mother abigail but you can apply it to dick halloran you can apply it to a couple of characters in the king world and that's you know i and i think some terrific things have been written about this but that's the idea of the magical negro trope in relation mm-hmm. to to john Coffey, which is kind of an element of the story you can't really not right not look at and acknowledge even as kind of more time has gone by since this was published and, and made and it It's, it's a strange question. It's, it's like, I know, you know, uh, some other filmmakers, I know Spike Lee had a very kind of visceral reaction to it when the film was first released. You know, I know Michael Clark Duncan, you know, disagreed with that, that assessment of it.
0: Well, what did Spike say? What was, he said
2: uh, something along the lines of, you know, Oh, this is just another one of the grateful slave tropes that like that coffee refusing any opportunity for freedom or to or survival actively like like that he he's offered this kind of emancipation after he does this good deed uh and then he's like no thank you like it that it it puts him back kind of in that yeah in that grateful slave place and that that he mm-hmm. uses the language you know yes or boss and like like all the all the kind of like deep south you know a lot of vocabulary associated with slavery it's 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 a a thing I, I don't know if, if Kings talked about too much, but we, we dealt with it a little bit with the stand, and where you have another kind of, you know, in Mother Abigail, you have this other kind of Christ figure that that mm-hmm. king imbues with these magical powers. and <coughs> um, Dick Halloran is, is an interesting kind of version of that too, but totally it, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting.
0: I think my reaction to this is that it's not really my place to weigh in on it. I think that any uh, reaction I could give would probably be the wrong one. You know what I mean? (laughs)
1: Like, (laughs) like whether you support it or against it, it's just not your
0: right. I mean, um, just hypothetically speaking, like if I'm not offended by it, that doesn't mean somebody else shouldn't be and, and have real concerns. I, I absolutely understand what Spike is saying there. So, I feel like my best course of action and this is like you know a thing I've learned over the last however many years is you shut the fuck up and listen to the <laughs> the the people who are affected by it and you know try to understand that so I don't have a verdict on that it's I just don't think it's for me to say.
1: Yeah, totally. Right. Um, well, great guys. Uh, this has uh, been a really <laughs> fun chat. <laughs> great way to end. Um, well, actually, one one more thing. Let's let's. I want to circle back to Tom Hanks one more time. There is a moment that he has that I think is in one of the like top ten best Tom Hanks acting moments in this movie. You have like Captain Phillips, you know, PTSD moment, you know, at the top of that list or whatever, right? It's like, but then there's a moment here whenever that it just shows that he's one of the best actors uh, living at this moment. And it is the scene after he gets healed by coffee and he goes in to take his first piss. Yeah. yeah. And the camera, like you talk about the camera, just sitting on somebody, the camera doesn't move, but everything plays on his his face in this like medium close up of him being unsure. Uh, to, for people who might not have read the story or, or remember the movie too well. He had a urinary tract infection, so that coffee heals. So this has been like pissing fire for him for this whole thing. It's he, he's all sweaty and awful, and you know it looks painful on screen. And he he goes in, and it's like this really tentative thing where he goes on this huge journey just through eye motion. And the tensing of muscles in his face where he he's like, this can't possibly be real. This has to be like whatever. And then like he slowly starts peeing and that like doubt and fear and waiting for the pain that doesn't come like all shows on his face. And then that turns into like this, like, you know, almost orgasmic ecstasy of him just peeing. And so props to Tom Hanks for a good pee face, I think, is what I'm ultimately getting at. I think that's fair. <laughs> the uh I thought it, that
2: that moment's amazing for sure, and I thought you were all when you were like it's one of the great acting moments right before that when he's laying on the floor after he'd been kicked in the yes groin, yes, right, heels, yes and he's like, i need to talk to you and, and and he's like now is not a good time like it's it's <laughs> right. it's so like perfect you know perfect tom hanks um and one of the many surprising laughs and like there's a big Tom Hanks cornbread sex joke moment in this movie. That's hilarious. And you know, was your wife pleased several times, you know, like it's, it's very, there are these moments in it where you're like this, this is really like they're, they're swinging for like Hank's charm humor and it, and it really lands, especially because of how bleak everything. Well, that's that, well, that's that
0: 20%, you know, that I was talking (laughs) about earlier. (laughs) And also, nope. I I agree with Mike. I think the the moment where Hank is on the ground, just kind of like recovering, I think that's right. the more memorable moment. But once again, the show has been completely derailed by Eric Vespi and his insistence on talking about urination. You know, I gotta finish. I'm, Don't I, judge me. I'm used to it. Yeah, our listeners are used to it. It's fine. It's fine. So, Mike, this is typically the point in the show where we allow our guests to. uh tease whatever they've got coming up we well we we sort of covered what you've got going on with uh midnight all the monkey paw or whatever it's it's uh that thing but um midnight uh can you can you tell us a little bit about the one that will arrive first
2: yes uh so first you'll you guys will get midnight mass it's a limited series Um, it'll be on Netflix. Uh, I don't know when exactly they haven't dated it, but hopefully by the end of the year, uh, if I can get through post, but it's, it's, um, a passion project of mine. I've been, I've been working on it for a decade, maybe a little more. You'll recognize it in a fun little Stephen Kingy way. It is the book that is on Jesse Burlingham's, uh, the shelf over the bed in Gerald's game. She throws it at the dog. It is the book that Maddie Kate Siegel's character and in, in Hush writes, uh, midnight mass. Um, I've been teasing it out for a long time. I was so lucky to be able to do it. Uh, I directed it's seven episodes. I directed all seven. Um, it's really my, my favorite thing I've ever gotten to, to work on in a very personal story. So I, I hope, I hope people like it. It'll be out, uh, as soon as, as soon as they figure out what they want to do. And, um, and then the other midnight one completely unrelated is the midnight club. It's a YA horror series based on the many writings of Christopher Pike. So if you were a kid in the nineties getting into horror fiction, then you probably know all about Christopher Pike
0: and, um, that'll be fun. Look, man, you said a lot of words just then. Um, <laughs> Sorry. and I just need to know how does midnight mass end? Like, let's get the answers out there. <laughs> Just yeah, we'll just jump right.
2: Just skip skip it. Who's got time in this day and age? Does it what, have? Does it have a twist ending? It has several twists. Uh, no no twist ending. The ending is okay. Pretty, okay, pretty inevitable, but uh, it, it will twist on you a couple times on the way.
0: How, Sounds like a happy ending though. How violent is it? Is it gory?
2: It is. It is gory. Um, it uh, <laughs> yes. It is more violent, I think, than anything else I've done. Um, <laughs>
0: Very good, very good.
2: It's kind of more of everything I've done so far. This one is the most of kind of whatever, (laughs) whatever you're looking for. It's, um, but yeah, I I, I hope you guys dig it. It's not based on a King thing. It's an original thing, but it is uh, just kind of covered in that Stephen King feel. Like it, it's yeah, it's very much my my riff on a few of his his things. So,
0: right on. Hope you like it. Yeah. Well, we're looking forward to seeing it and uh midnight club racing uh when that comes out (laughs) and uh you know thank you so much for being here once again i'm sure we'll have reasons to talk to you in the future but always a pleasure to to check in Uh, always always a joy uh to
2: to talk to you both and thanks so much for having me
1: once again many thanks to mike flanagan for joining us to you know nerd out about stephen king nobody better
0: (laughs) always a pleasure always a pleasure Mike is in all likelihood going to be a frequent presence on this show. So y'all should just get used to that. Him and Kate. Actually, we're going to have the whole Flanagan fan. We're going to get their kids on here eventually is what we'll yeah. to do.
1: And, uh, you know, just because we like to line things up, we figured our next week's title should be connected to this week's in some way, shape or form. And mm-hmm. by God, we done did it. We are going to be talking about Dr. Sleep next week in the main feed.
0: Finally happening. There's there's been a couple people on the Twitter feed that have been asking for Dr. Sleep. This one is for you guys.
1: So we'll be looking at the book. We'll be looking at Mike's adaptation, uh, which, you know, spoiler alert, if you've listened to the show at all, including this one that just ended, you know, we're big fans of Mike's and big fans of what he did with this uh, Mm -hmm.
0: book. And our guest on that episode is a well, a journalist and published in a, a number of magazines. Uh, newspapers, websites, you name it. it. Is also one of my favorite people on Twitter. A very uh, did we get Anderson Cooper? You, we did. I forgot to tell you, oh. but uh, also he's a very a very witty man. So the Doctor Sleep episode is a lot of fun and hyper positive because we just all love that shit. <laughs> except for well, except when it comes to the book. I think there may be some some disagreement on whether or not the uh, the book is as good as the movie, but. You'll find out about all of that next week. And then this Friday on the Patreon, we've got another awesome bonus episode for you. This one with the director of programming from Shuttered, Mr. Sam Zimmerman. This this gentleman, uh, his horror tastes are only matched by his incredible and unfair handsomeness. Uh, one of the most mm-hmm. handsome human beings I've ever laid my eyes on. He's coming in to talk about his top eight, I think is what he landed on, favorite Stephen King kills. Uh, As you can imagine, this episode, you know, is about death scenes in various Stephen King movies and trying to contain it to just eight. Originally, it was five. Didn't quite work. So what you're going to hear is us three talking about the whole bunch of various deaths in Stephen King movies and how much we love them.
1: It's a sprawling conversation that that kind of weighs like, what's a good Stephen King kill? Is it one that emotionally hits you? Is it one that's just super fun? You know, right. So like, Maximum Overdrive versus Stand By Me. It's like, yeah, you know, that that kind of stuff. We, so we we run the gauntlet. It's it's a very rowdy, wild, fun episode.
0: Also some Lake Mungo talk in there. Love that Lake Mungo.
1: That's right. So if you want to make sure you can hear that, go over to our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash the KingCast and sign up and uh, you'll get that plus a whole bunch of other goodies. Also, please, while you're thinking of it, maybe maybe pop on over to iTunes, leave us a rate and review us over there
0: where we are currently accepting five star reviews. uh, Nothing less. Eventually uh, there will be a window where we will welcome three, two and one star reviews, but now is not this time. Now it's just five stars. So hop on over there, do us a solid, let's raise the visibility of the show so we can continue getting the uh, excellent guests. We've been, we've been bringing in.
1: Sounds great. I think that's all the, uh, the housework for, for this week. Yeah,
0: I believe so. The only thing I want to add is that March is going to be a fucking crazy month if everything goes according <laughs> to plan.
1: Yeah, we got some cool stuff in the works, but uh, we for sure will see you guys next week for Doctor Sleep. The Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wompler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by Yours Truly.